We are uh, studying the book of Romans, Paul's letter to the church at Rome, and we're in a very sweet portion of that wonderful epistle, a portion that affirms to us the truths that exploded across Europe in the time of the Reformation of the 16th century. This guy named Martin Luther studied uh, the writings of Paul in the book of Romans. He saw there what we have been seeing, that salvation pardon from sin is entirely of grace through faith alone. He saw that our good deeds and the ordinances of the church do not equip us to be members in God's family and recipients of God's favor, but trust in this Jesus is crucial, and you know what else? It is sufficient. Millions were set free, have been set free by this discovery of the gospel. 500 years ago, and I pray we too will be set free as we dive deeper into the teaching of the apostle. When Paul, when Paul finished uh, chapter 3, he was telling us that the way of justification, the way of redemption is by faith apart from any moral or religious works, and that as a result, all the glory must go to God. Yeah, it, it, it's entirely of Him, entirely of His grace, and by His work and the work of His Redeemer, the Lord Jesus. So the transition to Romans 4 does not take us into new territory, but only into another way of driving home the point being made. So we read today the first eight verses of Romans chapter 4. What then shall we say that Abraham our forefather, according to the flesh, has found... For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness." Just as David also speaks of the blessing on the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works, blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. On this Sunday, one week before what we call Reformation Sunday, we're going to look at five points from this passage. They are not the famous five points of Calvinism, but five points from our text very much worth our pondering. First, we look at Abraham the example. Abraham had lived 2,000 years roughly before the time of Christ. He is, in a sense, the father of three great world religions, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. And you may hear these referred to as the Abrahamic faiths. He is clearly one of the most significant figures in all of human history. For the Jew, there was really no figure of equal importance. A few verses later, Paul will reference David, and David is certainly a big deal. In other places, he mentions Moses, who is probably the second greatest figure of the Jewish scriptures. But Abraham, Abraham is the great father. And it was to him the Lord came while he was living in a pagan land. It was to him the Lord made vast and eternal promises. 
the relationship God has with Abraham, it preceded the giving of the law to Moses. And throughout Paul's writings, we find that he looks back to Abraham's relationship with God as the standard for our own relationship with God. Now, one of the challenges Paul faced in preaching the gospel and establishing the church was that so many of his fellow Jews dismissed his message as being new or novel, disconnected from the ancient fathers of the faith. And so Paul takes on that challenge by asserting this surprising claim that instead of being something entirely new, his gospel was essentially the same as that which Abraham had believed millennia prior. Essentially what we'll receive that Paul shows us is that right standing with God is established by means of one putting faith in the promise of God, the Word of God. But notice what he calls Abraham. He is called our forefather according to the flesh. But that phrase has application to only a portion of his audience. That has application to the Jews, the ethnic Jews who considered Abraham to be in their actual bloodline. Interestingly, Paul will say in verse 16 of this chapter that Abraham is also the forefather of a different sort. Verse 16 from the NLT says, so the promise is received by faith. It is given as a free gift and we are all certain to receive it whether or not we live according to the law of Moses if we have faith like Abraham's, for Abraham is the, what? Father of all who believe. In other words, Abraham, whose name means the father of many nations, is the father of ethnic Jews, and he's the father of all true Christians because we share in his faith. We are his spiritual descendants, if you will. Paul is mindful of pointing not only his fleshly brothers and sisters back to Abraham's example, he also wants to point his Christian brothers and sisters back to him as well. Of course, if you know the story, Abraham was hardly a perfect example. Like Jesus, who was a perfect example, Abraham had some terrible moments of moral lapse and failure and collapse, but some of his acts of faith rooted in simple trust in what God said, some of them, they really were astonishing. I mean, beginning with him leaving his homeland and all that he knew to journey to a place he did not know. He believed a promise from God that he would have descendants like the stars of heaven in number, despite the fact that he was old and childless when he got the promise. He believed the promise that he would father a son despite his advanced age, and he kept believing those things even when God told him to sacrifice that son of promise on a mountain. Abraham had real faith, and so we who believe in sola fide, in justification by faith alone, we look to him with thanksgiving. Abraham is our example. Secondly now, we want to note that Scripture is our authority. Not the main point of the passage here, but I would have you note the question the apostle presents in verse 3. For what does the Scripture say? For what does the Scripture 
say. If you are familiar with the New Testament, it's easy to skip over that line because we are so accustomed to this type of saying. Jesus was always saying, thus says the Lord, and then he would quote the Bible. Paul and Peter and John, they all write with this presupposition that the Scripture is the very Word of God. They are appealed to over and again as the authoritative voice on any issue that they address. So here as well. How do we understand God's means for making a sinner right before Him? How do we know? We look to the Scripture. We don't quote the latest polls. We don't reference the scholars of our day. We look past all the human opinion, and we check with the Lord. What does His Word tell us? That is the great question. You remember the old uh, bumper sticker? I don't see them much anymore, but there used to be a lot more of these that said, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. But that's way too verbose. I mean, really. God said it, that settles it. <laughs> this is one of the major things that separates those of us who follow Jesus from those who do not. We are convinced that our God has spoken in His book, and that book is our authority for faith, it's our authority for practice. This was, uh, of course, also a major issue in the time of the Reformation 500 years ago. It divided the Reformers from uh, the Roman Catholic priest. You, you may have heard, like if you were here last Sunday, of the five solas of the Reformation. Sola gratia, grace alone. Sola fide, faith alone. Sola Christus, Christ alone. Soli Deo gloria, to the glory of God alone. And all based upon sola scriptura, the scriptures alone. Not the scriptures plus the Pope. Not the scriptures plus the councils. Not the scriptures plus the fathers. Martin Luther would take his stand on the scriptures. And in doing so, he follows Jesus and he follows Paul, and he follows Peter. Let's be with that crowd. In our passage, Paul quotes the Old Testament not once but twice to make his point. There is uh, the quote in verse 3 from Genesis chapter 15, and the quote in verse 7 from Psalm 32. Psalm 32, ring a bell. That was our memory verse, okay? Uh, we will say no more, no more about this uh, except to say how firm a foundation you saints of the Lord is laid for your faith in His excellent Word. Abraham is the example. Scripture is the authority. Spiritual accounting is the subject. Spiritual accounting. Anybody here have a degree in that? few accountants in the room, but spiritual accounting's a different thing entirely. We think of financial accounting, of course, but there's another type that involves a different currency, the currency of heaven. And what is the currency of heaven? It is righteousness. Proverbs 11.4 says, riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. Your American Express card will not be accepted on Judgment Day. Your Visa card will not be recognized. You need the hard currency of real righteousness. Let me say that again. On Judgment Day, you will need the hard currency of real righteousness. Do you have any of that? And if you know yourself and you're honest, you know the answer to that is, Nope. <laughs> I fear that some of you think you may have some of that just on your own. 
but you will be eternally disappointed if you make that claim at judgment day. It's an old gospel story that you don't want to push too far, but here it is. It depicts somebody, we'll call him Ned. Ned is uh, dying as his died, and he stands before Peter at the judgment desk, and, and Peter says to Ned, why should I let you into heaven? And uh, Ned is thinking, because I'm dead? Yeah. Uh, but he knows that Peter is thinking of something else. Uh, Peter knows he's dead, so he starts to play back his life, and, and he tells Peter about himself. He said, I never murdered anybody, felt like it, but didn't do it. He, he talked about how he had been mostly faithful to his wife for all those many years they were married, how uh, they had raised three kids, and... Uh, you know, he, he, wasn't, he wasn't too rough on them. Uh, they, they survived, and he, he established them as uh, relatively good citizens. He, he spoke about how he had donated money to worthy causes, how he had been baptized even and went to church at least a couple of times a year. He goes on for several minutes explaining to Peter the quality of his life, and uh, finally he slows down, and Peter looks at him and says, look, uh, to get in here, you need a thousand points. For all that you just mentioned, I'll give you one point. Uh-oh. Ned, uh, Ned panicked at this point. He knew he was in big, big trouble. He thought, just one point for all of that? He was feeling desperate, so he spent the next five minutes going deeper into his memory, recalling all the things that he did that he thought were noble and upright, and all the bad things he avoided. And again, he took a pause, and he looks hopefully at Peter, and Peter says, okay, two points. At which Ned breaks down and yells out, What? Only two points for all of that, but for the grace of God, there ain't no one getting in here. And Peter said, Okay, that's the other 998. Come on in. Uh, the point of the story we get into heaven by grace, not by works, not by our quality of life. It is the gift of God. It is the gift of God. Well, where does the needed righteousness that I reference come from? Well, I'm glad you asked. Uh, as a believer in Jesus, it turns out that you have a rich friend who has a large store of righteousness. Isn't that good news? Uh, a, a large store of spiritual treasure that he is happy to share with you if you will only ask. John MacArthur tells about a guy named Felix Jardeo. 1975, he was 60 years old. He lived in the Philippines, way out in a lonely place where he farmed a simple, small farm. Uh, Felix saved his money for many years in order to buy an ox to help him plow. He finally had saved enough, and then he went out to look for an ox to buy. But you know what he found? It was worse than sticker shock worse than inflation that we've become very familiar with. He learned when he went out to buy an ox that all the money he had saved was now worthless because the government had ordered that all the paper money be exchanged for new currency. But due to his being out in the sticks without access to what was going on in the world, he missed the memo and the window to make the exchange had passed. Heartbroken, Felix returned home. But he found a boy who could write, and he asked him to pin a letter to the president of his country. And the boy wrote this, Mr. Jardeo is poor and cannot read. <laughs> Can't you please let his money be good? They got a letter back, and it read, 
The law must be followed because the deadline for exchanging bills has already passed. The government cannot change the old bills for the new ones. Even the president is not exempt from this rule, end quote. But the letter did not end there. It added this, however, because I believe that you really worked hard to save this money, I am changing your money for new money from my own personal funds. And now you will be able to buy your ox. And the letter is signed, your friend, Ferdinand Marcos, president. So you see, Felix got his ox for the same reason I got righteousness. Not because I deserved it, not because I kept the law, but because I have a powerful friend who can transfer his wealth to my account. That is how gospel accounting works. So, uh, there's been a few times in my life when I've been eating at a restaurant, and when it came time for me to pay the bill, uh, the waiter or the waitress would announce, Sir, someone else has already taken care of your check. Cool. Cool. I was told that my bill had been paid by a generous friend who had seen me at the restaurant and decided to gift me my meal. Out of their own account, they covered my debt, you see. On our own, we have nothing to commend us to God. We are bankrupt. We are debtors. We can't even come up with two points on a standard of a thousand. What hope is there for us? Gospel accounting, which is based on grace and is based upon a transfer of credit from one account to another. Five times in our passage, the Greek text uses this word logizomai. It is translated in the New American Standard as credit. In your own Bible, it may be counted, reckoned, imputed. This is accounting language. It refers to the moving of funds from one account to another. We have no merit. Christ has plenty. When I merge with him by faith, his merit becomes mine. His righteousness is applied to my account so that I face judgment with confidence in the grace and merit of Jesus, my Savior. No merit of my own, my, his anger to suppress. My only hope is found in Jesus' righteousness. So did Abraham get justified because he was a great guy who followed God's law? You should, have, you should know the answer to this by now. Did, did Abraham get justified because he was a great guy who followed God's law? Not just no, by no means. Okay. Paul has taught us that all of us are sinners. Abraham is part of that all, but he is surely justified. So look at what verse 5 says about how that happened. To the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Well, that would be a good memory verse. So, so much there. God is called the one who justifies the ungodly. Now, that sounds terrible if you think about it. You don't like to hear about judges who let criminals off, do you? This last week, I guess, you know, the, the shooter in Parkland, right? He, they had the trial, and they didn't sentence him to the death penalty. There's been debates about that, but you hear stories all the time in the news. Some, some guy does something horrible, and and a judge lets him off with very little sentence, if, if anything. You don't like to hear about that. But we are told that God justifies the ungodly. Yet we celebrate this, don't we? 
Why? Two reasons. First, because we are ungodly sinners, so this mercy touches us in the most personal of ways. And secondly, we know that God somehow manages to do this without compromising His justice. Remember back in chapter 3, we read that God is both just and the justifier of those who have faith in Christ. The magic is found uh, the, what the magic is found there in the doctrines of imputation and propitiation that we have talked about in recent weeks and that magic is ignited by our faith and when does it all happen? When are we justified? When is righteousness accredited to your account? And the gospel answer is as soon as you put your trust in Jesus. It happens in a moment, and it happens when we are still ungodly, you see. This was the wonder of Martin Luther's teachings, that believers are at the same time both sinful and righteous. So John Piper writes this, the point of the word ungodly here is to stress that faith is not our righteousness. Faith believes in him who justifies the ungodly. When faith is born, we are still ungodly. Faith will begin to overcome our ungodliness, but in the beginning of the Christian life, where justification happens, we are all ungodly. End quote. Now, you, you may know that our Roman Catholic friends are taught differently on this point. They are taught that justification will hopefully happen for you at the end of this life. That's why they generally go through life without a deep sense of confidence and assurance. But it only happens if by grace... God makes you righteous, and then you live out a good life. I hope you see that that doesn't jive with the idea of God justifying the ungodly. Martin Lloyd-Jones writes this, God does not first make us godly and then justify us. What Paul says is that he justifies the ungodly, not the formerly ungodly, end quote. Thanks be to God that he goes on to perform a transforming work in those whom he redeems. But that work flows out of and is reliant upon our justification. It does not lead to our justification. And so we sing, just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, and that thou bidst me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come. Just as I am and waiting not to rid my soul of one dark blot, to him whose blood can cleanse each spot, O Lamb of God, I come. We come expecting that He will justify the ungodly, that He will forgive our sin, that He will cover us in His righteous robes, that He will transfer the righteousness of Jesus to our account and accept us for His sake. All right, we move on to point four. Abraham the example, Scripture the authority, spiritual accounting is the subject, and now faith is the focus. Paul takes our eyes away from the matter of works, moral, religious works, points us to faith as the distinctive mark of the justified. Verse 3 says, Abraham believed and thus was justified. Verse 4 or verse 5 tells us <coughs> that this is the point. It is belief, just as Jesus taught, those who believe in him, he said, have eternal life because those who believe in him are at that moment justified, reconciled, with their maker. And why is that? Not because there is any intrinsic power to our faith. No, no. 
Faith is only the instrumental cause of our justification. The source of it is grace. The source of it is the righteousness and the sacrifice of Jesus. From whence comes the power to light up your house? Where's the power come from? Do you point to the switch on the wall and say that's where the power comes from? You know that's not true, right? Do you point to the cord that attaches to the wall and say that's where the power comes from? You know that's not true. The power doesn't come from the copper wires. It comes from the power plant that somehow that wire connects back to. The wires are critical though as what? Conductors. They connect your home to that power. Just so our faith is gifted to us by God, it connects us with His saving power. Abraham, the father of those who believe, so we learn from him. Verse 3 says he believed God. Now notice it doesn't say he believed in God. He believed God. It was God's word that he trusted. It was not his belief in God, <coughs> his believing God who had spoken to him. He trusted him. He trusted his promise. That is saving faith. Galatians chapter 3 offers the same thoughts as Romans 4. So look there. Once again, Paul references here Genesis 15, 6, there in Galatians 3, verse 6. Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of the faith, or are of faith, who are sons of Abraham. The scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, All the nations will be blessed in you. So then, those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. And you should say, Wow. Try that again. Wow. The apostle really pounds it home. The children of Abraham are the believers of all ethnicities because Abraham is called what? He is called the believer. Anyone who follows him by trusting God's word inherits the promises that were made to him. Now, clearly the content of the message that we believe now is different from that which Abraham believed. We have the New Testament witness. We have the whole story of the Messiah. Abraham had only a little piece of it, but he had something. And the promise of God that Abraham would bless all the nations, Paul calls that promise the gospel. It was good news to Abraham, and he believed it even when he was childless. One more verse on this. Jesus speaking, John 8, verse 56. My father Abraham rejoiced to see my day and he saw it and was glad. So Abraham was given eyes to see the future coming of the Messiah, even as we are given eyes to see the past coming of our Messiah. But in both cases, the point is that our hearts are touched so that we put our trust in this Jesus. However much we know about him, however much we understand about him, and that gift of faith connects us with Jesus in all of his saving virtue, in all of his saving power. Anything else we learn as believers, it only grows out of that. We are not only justified by faith, we are sanctified by faith in the promises and the Word of God. That is why we want to awaken every day with a prayer for faith to trust the Word of the Lord more thoroughly that we might live for Him more fully. 
So faith will yield greater obedience, as James teaches us, but it will also yield joy. This is our fifth point for today. Joy is the goal. Paul, after pointing us to Abraham, also offers the witness of King David in verses 7 and 8, where he quotes from Psalm 32, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven, (coughs) whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. David offered this up after he had been forgiven his sins with Bathsheba. Who gets blessed? You wonder, why did David not say, blessed is the man who never sins? That'd be good, wouldn't it? But he'd be speaking to a very, very small audience. But he tells us there is a way for a sinner to still be blessed. Did you know that, sinner? There is a blessing. There is a joy available even to you. You see the key words, forgiven, covered. Verse 8 is the language of accounting again. Your moral debts are blotted from the books, replaced with the merits of Jesus. David says, and Paul agrees, that this is the basis for joy. This is where sinners go to find happiness. We run to the gospel. We run to the cross. We embrace the Savior in all of His mercy, in all of His cleansing love. We can make much of our sin if we like, but for every one look at your sin, you, you, you can take nine looks at Jesus. <laughs> for every look at your sin, take nine looks at Jesus. We can point out, you know, how severe our sin is, how ugly it is. We can. We can go there as long as we make more of Christ. We can say, oh, what is the world coming to, as long as we say, look who has come to the world. David is saying, as our hymn does, our sins, they are many. His mercy, his mercy is more. It's bigger. It's greater. And so when we go to pay the bill on Judgment Day, what do we discover? Oh, Jim. Oh, Amber. Oh, Jeff. We can't find a record of your sins anywhere. But boy, oh boy, do you have an abundance of righteousness. Welcome home. Blessed are you. So we've seen Abraham the example, Scripture the authority, spiritual accounting the subject, faith is the focus, our joy is the goal. My friend, one of the aims of the gospel story is your joy. Are your sins forgiven? Are they covered? Are they paid for? Then here is what you do now. Rejoice! And go from this place walking in the strength of that joy to the delight of your Father and your Savior. So let's pray. Father, we bless you for this glorious word. Thank you for the example of Father Abraham for his faith which you gave to him and that faith that we share with him. We thank you, Lord, that that faith results in our justification by connecting us with Christ. We thank you, Lord, that it results in our joy as we contemplate our 
final ultimate acceptance into your presence and glory. And we thank you, Lord, that your rich word has testified in Romans 4 and Galatians 3 and Genesis 15 and many other places that this is your promise, this is your gospel into which we can live and in which we put our trust. For those who came in the door today not believing your promise, God, may they be granted that gift now. Come by your Spirit. Quicken their hearts. Let them see the beauty of Jesus, their need for Him, and for His righteousness, His virtue, His merits to be accredited to them. We ask in that good name. Amen.